morning. Uh, we're jumping in the Word. Grab your Bible. We're going right back into 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4, uh, moving into today. So hope you've been tracking with us. If not, uh, you can always go back and watch the previous videos. You can also listen to a podcast, by the way. I haven't really promoted that a lot, but it's out there. Um, you can find us on iTunes, but you can listen to a podcast if you prefer to listen rather than watch my face staring at this camera over here. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, church is tonight. This is not church. Uh, we are a church, but this is me unpacking the word. Uh, we'll gather together tonight and that will be, uh, the time we assemble as a church. And it's a great time. Love for you to come. We're in Tempe, Arizona. You can find us online, social media. Uh, you can email us. You can check out the website. However you want to contact us, we'll tell you how to find us. Love for you to come, uh, be part of what we're doing and, and uh, just get, bring your, you know, what God's telling you as you look at his word. That's that's part of, that's the main part of what we gather over that in prayer. So anyway, that's tonight. We've been working through this series called uh, Cross-Shaped Life. And the verse that we've kind of chosen as a theme, we'll repeat it weekly. But it's uh, actually from 1 Corinthians and Paul's uh, another letter he wrote to the same church. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So today, though, we're looking at a, a title I, I called God Over God, capital G over lowercase g, God. And that's kind of a weird little phrasing, I know, but maybe you'll remember it. <laughs> and I'll, anyway, I'll explain what that means as we go. Sometimes we act like being a Christian is all about being a good person, making sure you're praying, going to church, encouraging other people, being fun to be around. I, I don't know what it is, but it is those things. But what we tend to forget is that being a Christian is anything but safe. Anything but safe. Uh, we we uh, tend to forget that we actually do have an enemy, one who hates us, one who is uh, a liar and vengeful and, and hates us, hateful. And the stakes are the highest possible. The souls of men, women, and children. You know, and, and I get that's heavy. And maybe sometimes we uh, have a hard time accepting it. Because maybe you've got a, a son or a daughter. Or maybe you're a son or a daughter with a mom or a dad. Who doesn't doesn't believe in Jesus. Doesn't believe in all this spiritual stuff. And um, doesn't think about it. Doesn't worry about it. I know that's heavy. Uh, but our enemy is real. And the battle gets harder and harder the more that you remain faithful to Christ. But there is hope. And that hope is that Jesus is the capital G God who created all things. And no one is beyond his reach or power to save. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2. Uh, I'll read a couple of verses and we'll come back across it all. But in chapter 2 I'm going to start about the second sentence in there. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Father, as always, it's your word. Thank you for putting it into our hands and trusting us with it. Not just me, all of those who love you call you Lord. Let us be faithful to keep your word, your word. Um, let us not, as Paul put, tamper with it, Lord. Let us allow your word to speak to me first, 
before I ever open my own mouth. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, put away the glasses so I don't fidget. Um, you guys ever heard of Timothy Treadwell? Some of you may know the name. I, I actually would kind of doubt it, but maybe you do. I don't know how how much you pay attention to to things, but uh, if the name rings a bell, uh, maybe you know, maybe you don't. Uh, I give you another little piece of uh, news about him. He died in 2003. He was 46 years old. He was a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, uh, American guy. If you still don't know, I could throw in that he lived among grizzly bears, and you may probably know who I'm talking about now. Even if you didn't know or see the the famous film that was made about him, you probably know the story or have heard it. Um, and I don't mean to giggle or laugh, but it, but that's kind of the the way he's portrayed. Because some see him as a legend in how he lived among these bears these big brown bears other people and probably a majority i would think see him as being foolish for doing that uh he believed sincerely i mean in his own head he believed that what he was doing was living among bears who loved him they were family to him they loved him they would never hurt him he he has this whisper in his head so to speak that's telling him man these guys would never hurt you they love you and they're your family. And many people tried to warn him and tell him the truth. Hey, man, bro. <laughs> you know, and then there were others who probably uh, muddied down that truth and said, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's not as bad as everybody thinks. Yeah, I'm sure they do love you. Um, encouraging him on. But in the end, around October 5th or 6th, uh, nobody's sure which, which exact moment, but around that time period, he and his uh, a girlfriend of his who was visiting him at the time, were both killed and eaten by these bears, or at least a bear. Um, you know, there are real dangers out there, and sometimes appearing friendly, those dangers become inviting, and sometimes we get tempted to think that, you know, ah, it may not be that bad. So telling the complete truth and hearing the complete truth can actually save lives, even if it's not popular or offensive or whatever. But but blindness is also real. And even to the point that we walk into our own death with those blinders on, and the truth matters, life matters, the war is real. Guys, it's real. And it can be tempting to try to convince other people uh, of God's word by adjusting it a little bit. Uh, we'll just tweak it a little, make it a little more attractive. But we need to remember that we're in a war here, a battle with a real enemy who loves to lie. He blinds, he steals, he kills. Uh, we need to humbly preach the whole truth of God's word, all of it. Trust the spirit of God to open the eyes of the blind. Preach his word and trust him to open the eyes of the blind, to display the unveiled gospel, which reveals that Jesus is the light of capital G God and Satan is the lower G God of darkness and deception. So Paul describes a, a pattern for our lives based on how he lives his, and it's pretty good. I'm going to outline it that way. He, he talks first about staying faithful to God's word. And then about seeing the little God's lie. I'm calling him the little God here. Little God's lie. And then shining God's glory. Reflecting God's glory. Shining the glory of God. So staying faithful to God's word. Let's jump in there first. Verse 1. 
He says, therefore, so he's building on what he said previously. Therefore, having this ministry, not the ministry of death and condemnation that that he was previously talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read the previous chapter or go back and watch last week's video or listen to the podcast. But what he's building on that and he's saying, having this ministry, not the ministry of death and condemnation, but the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the new covenant. Paul saying, he's saying, we have it by the mercy of God and we don't lose heart. Paul's ministry is an, is from God, he says. In fact, Paul calls it an act of mercy to have it. God's granted mercy to give it to him. So much mercy, if you read Paul's story, that he considered all his great and religious and pious deeds to be garbage compared to it, to be filth, Paul says. I love Ironside said this. He says, I know that the gospel is from God because no man would ever have imagined such a message. What, well, what a statement. I mean, think about it. The cross. Who would write that story? The God of all creation goes to a, gets nailed to a cross for the sins of mankind? Who, who, who writes that story? Ironside goes on and he says, the gospel and the gospel alone tells me or excuse me, tells men that they're utterly helpless, that they can do nothing to merit divine favor, but they do not need to do anything, for God himself has come out in loving kindness in the person of his Son to save men by grace alone. This is no human thought. This is not come from the human mind. This is a revelation that came from heaven. We have received this ministry. And having received it, we are accountable to God to pass it on to others. It, are, uh, he says, uh, it was his mercy that he made it known to us. And we ourselves have been saved through believing it. Word, that's what's up. And then Paul says he doesn't, they don't lose heart. Lose heart means to kind of surrender to fear. It means that you have no fight left in you. Paul says, not us, bro. Not us. He, he, he referred to, he, he claimed previously they were bold, they were ministers of a new covenant here. But does it, does it mean, saying they didn't lose heart, that they're bold, does that mean that now that they're under this new covenant, they can just do whatever they want? Be whoever they want to be, act however they feel? No way, man. Beholding Christ, as we talked about before there, transforms you. It changes your life. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. He goes on. He says, but we have renounced. It means to disown or repent of, which is implying that Paul was once that way. And he's saying we've renounced disgraceful, that's shameful, dishonest, underhanded ways. It means secret or hidden behaviors. Paul, Paul's saying he was that way. Is that a shocker to you? Uh, he told Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he told him this in verse 13. He says, formerly I, Paul, was a blasphemer, a prosecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This thing is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost or chief, Paul would say. Look, he goes on in verse 2. We refuse to practice uh, cunning. So cunning there, what he's talking about, what, what that phrase means is, is, is walking in deceitfulness, living a life of wickedness that is 
is trying to ensnare people for the sake of gain. That, that, that's the picture of what he's trying to say. So we refuse to do that or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, conscience in the sight of God. So they have renounced and now he's saying they refuse. And he's saying they refuse to tamper with God's word. The idea of tampering with there is the idea of diluting something's purity. So maybe if you took like goodies powder or BC powder or one of, you know, one of those kind of aspirins and they come in the powder in the little packet and you took one packet and added a bunch of flour to it and divided it over and made two packets. And so you sell it as two packets, but you're still calling it that BC powder pain relief or Google, uh, Google. Goodies pain relief. Or maybe it's like taking a, a glass of wine, a bottle of wine that's super nice and super expensive and you add water into it and make two glasses, two bottles of that uh, particular wine in order to stretch it out so you can make more money. It's still the expensive stuff. It's just been greatly weakened. It's a much weaker version than what it should be, but you're still paying expecting that it has the power of the real thing. Paul says he's not going to do that. Do you know people who do that with God's word? Maybe you you don't know them, but do you watch people that do that with God's word on TV? Maybe in your church, if you're not part of ours, pray, pray, pray that I spend diligent time to make sure that's never me. I never want that to happen. I'm never intending that to happen. It's his word. And I'll tell you why. Because only the Spirit of God, we already read this, only the Spirit of God can remove the veil. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So tampering with God's Word to make it more attractive cannot save anyone. Listen to what I just said. Tampering with God's Word to make it more attractive, trying to just make people want to be in there and want to read it by making it more attractive, cannot save anyone. Because this is the, this is the deal. If you know me, you've heard me say this a million times. You read the Bible to see God. It's Him. It's a picture of who He is. Every word you read tells you more about Him. And as you dig in there, you start to see this picture of who He is. Well, if you change the words, if you add words to it, then whatever picture you come up with is not Him because you changed it. You understand what I'm saying? Second uh, Timothy 4 verse 2 Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul told Timothy, preach the word, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Look, look what he says though. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So he's not just saying be ready anytime somebody asks you. He's saying you be preaching and then be ready to do the tough stuff. Be ready if you need to reprove somebody. Be ready if you need to exhort somebody. Whatever the season is, be ready to deliver God's word appropriately as it is with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now that's a amazing uh, verse a couple of verses there I'm not going to dig deep into. You get the point of what he's saying. People are going to, want, going to turn their ear towards what they want to hear. And if you're preaching something out of God's word that they don't want to hear, they're going to let it go. And before you know it, they're into a complete myth. It's not really God they're listening to anymore. So staying faithful to God's word, Paul says, and then seeing the little gods lie. All right, Paul, Paul points out what it is here. Look at verse 3. 
Even if our gospel is veiled, so even if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, One commentary noted, which was pretty cool, Paul was encouraged by the fact that the gospel did not have to be accepted by everyone to remain valid. That's a good point. Just because people don't say yes to the gospel doesn't mean that the gospel is invalid some way, shape, or form, first of all. But Paul returns to this veil imagery. Again, he's building on what we've been talking about. So you can go back last week if you want to get into it. But just a quick recap of what he's building on here. Moses' face would glow when he would be in the presence of God. And he would come out with that glow visible on his face. And he would speak to the people whatever it was that God was saying to him for them. But then he would veil his face afterwards, most believe, because that glory was fading, uh, until he went back into God's presence, and then he would unveil himself again, come back out, the people would see the, the glory, that kind of thing. So Paul then said that when you look at him and his, his people, believers, but he's talking about him, said when you look at him, you will never see a veil. Never. You should only see Christ. The glow of the gospel is on his face all the time because Christ is within him. This is what Paul was talking about last week. And it's the same for us under the same new covenant that there is no veil on us now or ever. As believers, because of the cross, that veil has been removed. And so we should see Jesus fully. And then at the same time, we should reflect his glory at all times to those around us. So Paul says here in verse 3, If their gospel's veiled, if it's veiled, there's two reasons he notes why. One is they're perishing. Well, what that means is sin. Wages of sin is death. It's sin. He's saying their own sinful condition is one reason. They're not starting neutral. As as unbelievers, we don't, you know, I was an unbeliever once. You don't start neutral. You start in an unbelieving place. You're You're not snared by the devil and forced to do something against your will here. The, the, the face that, you know, unbelievers face a veil, a veil of their own sinful desires and sin causes death. That's why he says perishing. It's without the hope or without hope because of the sin that is within them already. That's number one. And then number two, he adds to their hopelessness. Satan, his kingdom takes their sinfulness and keeps them blinded from seeing hope in a cross. Again, Satan doesn't have to chain them up. He has to keep them, just keep them satisfied with their own sinful desires. They already got it. Notice that he, he brings up the light of the glory of the gospel is a person here. It's a person. It's referred to as the image of God here. Satan is using their own, these unbelievers' own selfish desires and their own selfish condition to keep them from finding hope in Jesus. That's what he's saying, to keep them from seeing hope in Jesus. Look at it, listen to me, listen to me real clear. Accepting Jesus, we talk about, choosing Jesus, whatever. It means two things that most people are not willing to do. It's honest truth. It means two things most people are not willing to do. Repent and surrender. Repent and surrender. To admit your sins are sins. And then to say, My life is yours, Jesus. My life is yours. 
Most people don't want to do that. The only way you're going to do that is if the Holy Spirit takes the veil from your eyes. That's why we call it being saved. You are being saved. It's being done to you. You're completely blinded by sin and held captive to it until that happens. Paul said you're in a state of death. So think about it like this. You're in a tomb and there is a stone rolled over the entrance. You can see nothing but absolute blackness. And then suddenly the stone begins to rattle. You can feel the walls and you hear some noise start to, to make, uh, to, to start to bang around like, like the rocks are shaking. And suddenly the stone rolls a little crack back and light streams in through the little opening, and it's almost like there is this army trying to hold that stone in place, but nonetheless the stone pushes back out of the way, and suddenly light floods the room, and it seems to be getting brighter. And within a moment or two, you begin to see the image of a person, the shape of a figure standing in the doorway of the tomb. And as he comes in a little more, you realize that there's something special about this person, but you, the, the intensity of the light is almost more than you can bear. But as the light fills the room, you also begin to realize you're in a tomb. And then you realize, man, you've got uh, cloths wrapped around you, grave clothes on, and you've got cloths, uh, cloth around your face. And so the image is, is, is clear, but also hard to see because it's more of a shadow from the light. And then he comes over to you, he sits you up, and he unwraps your head, And you realize you're in a grave. You realize these cloths have been on your face. And you're suddenly looking face to face at Jesus. And he says, I love you. You're mine. Guys, that's what we call being saved by grace. To see Jesus, to know the love and mercy of God. That's what we're talking about. If this hasn't been your experience, but now as I'm talking, maybe you're beginning to feel the weight and the pull of your sin, that maybe you want the freedom from the shame, the freedom from the fear, the freedom from the anger, the freedom from the hatred, whatever it is you you want forgiveness. Maybe you're starting to feel the weight of that. Today's the time. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you Jesus. Do it. You can get on your knees, you can lay on your face, or you can just say it out loud. I don't care, but do it. First um, Corinthians 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those, it's a joke to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to me, if you're his, a good test of whether you are a light in the darkness, whether your face is shining, is by what your light is exposing in the darkness, and how that, what is being exposed, responds. It's a war. I said that already. It's not a popularity war. We're in occupied territory, behind enemy lines, trying to raise a flag of an invading kingdom that is hated by the current kingdom. And there's no limit to the viciousness and the suffering that the present king wants to impose on his enemies. And we see too often, we tend to view Christianity, we tend to think of it like this. Like, we're joining the reserves. We're getting on our nicest outfit. It's peacetime. We're being the best soldier that we can be. We work hard in basic training. And we do our weekends faithfully. 
And if we need to deploy for a time, that's fine. We're going to go to some beautiful German countryside or a French beach. And yeah, man, we're going to, we're going to rep our country well. We're going to wear our nicest American soldier uniform and we're going to look sharp and proper and we're going to speak to people and tell them positive things. And, but a disciple of Christ is in wartime. Wartime. It means hitting the French beach on D-Day. It means exploring the German countryside, marching into the face and teeth of Hitler's army, so to speak, in a pristine American uniform, standing out, with no hope of avoiding being fired upon because that's what you're there for. You are intentionally engaging in battle because you're trying to liberate people who are suffering. That's the Christian walk. Notice Satan's war plan here. Blinding the mind so they don't see. How does he blind the mind? Lies. Lies. That's what Paul's trying to point out. He tells them, you know, hey, look, man, you're too smart to believe all this stuff about Jesus. Raising from the dead, going to cross. Man, you too, you don't really believe all that. Yeah, look, man, you, you could do it, but you're going to have to give up way too much. They're going to make you give up way too much. There's too many things you enjoy. They're going to tell you you got to give up and stop. You know what? God's never going to accept you. I know you feel like he is, but man, he ain't got time for you. You, you, you're a bad dude. You're a bad girl. You've done some horrible things. He, he ain't got time for you. Hey, look, worry about it later. Now's not the time to be bothered about this. You got too many things going on in your life. You can deal with that when you, when you get a family, when you settle down, when your kids are grown up, when you're getting closer to death, then you can start thinking about the after death stuff. Uh, you know what? Religion is a crutch, man. God is just a crutch. The gospel is for weak minded people. These are the kind of things he says. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, Paul said, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments. You see where he's talking about? The mind here. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion. The mind raised against the knowledge, the mind of God. And we take every thought captive, thoughts to obey Christ. It's the lies. Paul says it's the lies of this little G God. The, the ruler of this kingdom that we're in here. Is he the ruler of this world? I'll give you a handful of verses quickly just for some evidence. Matthew 4, verse 8. The devil takes Jesus onto a high mountain in order to tempt him. And he says this, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory uh, if you will fall down and worship me. And that was a fair offer. Jesus didn't say, hey, they're not yours to give. They were his to give. John 12, verse 31 Jesus said, now the judgment of this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus' own words. John 14, 30. I will not talk much longer with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. It's ruler again. John 16, 11, concerning judgment, because, talking about the, the Holy Spirit here, because the ruler of this world is judged. So again, ruler of this world, multiple times from Jesus. Then Paul in Ephesians 2, uh, years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Paul writes to Ephesus, and he says in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, talking about how we all walked in sin, he says, We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He, he's referring to him as 
prince, king, ruler of the air, of the world that we're in. First Peter 5, again, years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Peter writes in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's his kingdom. He's prowling around seeking to devour people because we're his enemy. First John 5, verse 19, probably one of the more powerful ones here. And again, years after Jesus, uh, death, burial, and resurrection, verse 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Could go on, but that gets it. But did you notice Paul specifically here in Second Corinthians 4 used the word God? Little g, I'm saying, God. Does that mess with your head a little bit? Is he God of this world? Is Paul just being figurative in his words here? Uh, there's a book by Michael Heiser called The Unseen Realm. It's it's pretty heavy. It's a wild, wild book. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and debate on how much of it is, I think, is 100% whatever. I, that's not my place. But the man's a brilliant theologian, should be taken very seriously. Um, but in the book, he makes kind of a, a, a great point, and he kind of gets to this... this um, place where he where he t- discusses how a, a god was an object of worship it's something that is to be worshiped but there must be some display of power in it that draws that worship all right otherwise jehovah god jehovah yahweh god for him to claim that all worship belongs to him because he is all powerful and because he's greater than all other gods it really has no weight hold hold on a minute it really has no weight if we're just talking about a simple lifeless rock or a tree in other words for you know you could knock down a tree you can chop down a tree i can pick up a rock and throw it you know is it really saying something about how powerful he is that he could do something like that. And look, we tend to dismiss spirituality fast. Oh, it's just they, they believe it's doing something. It's not really doing anything. I mean, you've got to be careful there. We dismiss the whole worshiping nature and spirituality and all that stuff as ignorance, but it doesn't make people ignorant because they believe in an object. Wrong, maybe, but not ignorant. You have Buddhists, you have Hindus, you have Native Americans. There are countless millions of people throughout ages of time that have worshipped things. They've observed spiritual power in some way or heard of it or expected it at some point in time. And if it's drawing worship, it has to be powerful. And the point is that Christ is more powerful. Christ is more powerful not that there have none, but Christ is more. In biblical days, there were many objects or statues that were perceived to have power. You can go to First Corinthians, or sorry, First Samuel chapter five. Read in your own time about Dagon, a god of the Philistines, who was a big statue. They had a temple for him and everything. And when they captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Israels, from the Israels, from the Israelites, they placed the Ark in that temple in front of that statue, and the statue falls down, face down to the ground in front of the ark. You can read the story. It's a really cool story. But, again, it means nothing. It means nothing that God caused a simple statue of wood or stone to kneel. It really doesn't mean anything. However, it means something else entirely if that lifeless object of worship is empowered by a spiritual 
force who is an enemy of God, such as a fallen angel, such as the little g God himself, Satan. If that be the case, it means something else entirely. In fact, in Revelation, you can read it in your own time, we're told that in the, the, the times of the end that Satan will have a statue to be worshipped and he will cause it to speak uh, and, and people will do exactly that. They begin to worship it. Ephesians 6 verse 12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Go back and read that about four or five times. Get it in your head. Look at the words he's using. Forces, rulers, authorities, powers. That's who you're against. You're not against just some piece of wood. There's something there. Something powerful. And Paul ends this by noting that Christ is the true image of God. According to Hebrews 1, he is the exact imprint of his nature. It is him. Christ is God. So you have Paul saying he's staying faithful to God's word. He's seeing the little God's lie here. And then he's shining God's glory. Look at verse 5. We'll finish quick. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. Again, he's talking about knowledge, like blind in the minds that Satan was doing here, the battles in the mind. To give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, I recall a time we had a guest speaker come to a church where... I was uh, on staff, and our pastor introduced our guest speaker from the stage and then invited him to come up, but the guest speaker did not move. Apparently, he was offended by the unsatisfactory introduction that he was given, not kidding, and he required the pastor to do it again and do it right this time. I'm not joking. It happened. Paul says, you know what? That's not, that's not about That's not how we roll. That's not us. He says it's always been about Christ and Christ only. Like John 3.30 when John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. Paul says, if anything, we're your servants. Look what he's saying. We're your servants for Jesus. Like that word there for servant, that's not diakonos where we get deacon. That's doulos where we get slave. He's saying we're your slaves. I wonder how that intro would have gone over. Hey, uh, I'd like to welcome Dave uh, to the stage, our slave uh, for uh, because of Christ's mercy, I would like to welcome our slave to the stage for because of Christ's mercy. I mean, think about that. That's Paul's own confession. God shines light out of darkness. It says here. That's a reference to the phrase "Let there be light." When did that happen? At creation, right? When the world was created, God began it with the very first act was saying, "Let there be light." That's who capital G. God is. That's who Jesus is. MacArthur said the same God who created physical light in the universe is the same God who must create supernatural light in the soul and usher believers from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. The light is expressed as the knowledge of the glory of God. That means to know that Christ is God incarnate. To be saved, one must understand that the glory of God shone in Jesus Christ. In contrast to the little g God of this world, Jesus is the capital G God who created all things, including this world. Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is the one who shone light into our darkness. He is the eternally unveiled, 
eternally unfading glory of God. That's who Jesus is. And just as Moses spent time with God and then his face reflected and shone the glory of God to others, Paul says that God is the one who shines in our hearts, not just our face, but in our hearts in order to give the light of knowing to others that the glory of God is recognized to be Jesus. That's what Paul says. Listen, Billy Graham said, you got two sets of ears. Your physical ears, which hear what I'm saying to you right now. And your spiritual ears that hear what he says to you. I don't know which ears you're listening through right now. I hope both. But if this is the first time your spiritual ears are hearing, I pray you respond to them. Tell Jesus right now, I want to come out of the grave. I want life. Shine your light into my heart. Show me who you are. Save me. He will do it. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. You are amazing. Pray, God, that you're glorified in my life and all of our lives and that as we battle, uh, as we face these spiritual battles and struggles throughout our days and as we advance your kingdom, Lord, that we realize that we do nothing that anything that's happening is happening because of the faithfulness of your um, Son in our hearts that guides and moves us forward. And I pray we would reflect him always. In Christ's name, amen.